Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to David Sinclair, who's the founder and CEO of For Freedom Mobile, a company whose mission is to help people take back their digital freedom by showing them how to prevent network operators, tech companies, and others from tracking their personal information. We're going to be talking to David exactly about that topic, but we're also going to be talking uh, to David about some of the threats to our privacy uh, and to democracy in relation to you know, what big tech is doing, digital currencies, and the capabilities for these large organizations or other or any organization to track our whereabouts and our activities. But before we do all that, I want to say hi to David. David, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you, Mark. Appreciate you having me on. I, my pleasure. Whereabouts are you located? Uh, currently, I'm sitting in Georgia. Uh, usually, I'm actually based out of Salt Lake City, uh, but uh, just came down here to Georgia because that's where I'm originally from, Mother's Day. Awesome. Well, that's very nice uh, for you to go see your mom. And uh, I like Salt Lake City. I pass through there two or three times a year uh, for a variety of reasons. But when I do, I typically have my mountain bike and I like to go up to Park City in this time of the year because it's so nice up there. Yeah, usually it's a fantastic time to be mountain biking up in Park City. Uh, this year, actually, they've still got snow on the ground. Do they really? So, wow. Uh, oh, yeah. That's we pretty... had a ski event in Park City on Friday of last oh, week. That's you know, May 12th. That's amazing. That's amazing. Hey, um, I, I was looking at the show preparation notes, and it says that you spent most of the last 30 years outside the U.S. So let me ask you, where were you and what were you doing? Uh, I was all over the place, actually. So I've uh, worked a lot of time in Eastern Europe. Uh, my background, actually, my original degree was in Soviet relations and uh, graduated. We need, right we need to collapse. So I bought a plate. I'm oh, sorry, I cut you off there. I was going to say we need some of those these days, Soviet relations or Russian relations, <laughs> I should say. But but go ahead, please continue. Yeah, I was going to say I graduated right when the Soviet Union collapsed, so I literally bought a plane ticket and moved over there and uh, started a business. And, wow. And uh, have spent most of the last thirty years working in or with Eastern Europe. Did a lot. Did a lot of time as well in the Middle East and Africa. A little time in South Asia. Uh, some time in Latin America too. Um, I spent most of the last 30 years actually working in the tech industry, uh, initially in mobile uh, telecommunications, and then uh, working in systems integration and outsourcing. Uh, and so a lot of that time I spent in systems integration and outsourcing, I was actually implementing and operating systems for mobile operators, as well as uh, for national governments or state-run companies, that sort of thing in Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa. Um, so... Uh, in particular, with regards to what we're going to talk about today, uh, in my last role, I started, at, built, and then managed uh, the systems integration and outsourcing business for one of the world's largest systems integrators in 10 countries in Eastern Europe. And as a part of that job was um, implementing and operating uh, systems for mobile operators and national security agencies for certain governments uh, to track people through uh, their mobile phones, as well as facial recognition systems and, and, and many other uh, sorts of uh, surveillance uh, technology. Well, let's, let's just jump right into that then. I mean, what are some of the most commonly used methods to track people? So there's a lot of different ways to track people. And, and, and 
Uh, you know, if you take a look at, for example, uh, in London, in ahead of the 2012 Olympics, there was a huge amount of money spent on uh, improving the CCTVs that they already had, but also implementing a lot of software behind that to actually be able to do facial recognition, identify individuals and to track them. Um, but what's really changed from about 2010 to today is the amount of tracking that goes on through people's mobile phones. And so it's no longer necessary really even to have facial recognition to be able to track somebody's location because the ability to track somebody's location has become highly refined. Uh, you, you can get within a few feet of where that person is located just by tracking their mobile phone. Um, and, and the mobile operators are extremely closely embedded from a technology perspective with the national governments in every country that they operate because the national governments provide them their frequency licenses. And so there's a, a, an awful lot of uh, cooperation that goes on between government agencies and the mobile operators that the mobile operators do simply because they have to. They don't have a choice because they're dependent on those governments for their frequency licenses, their right to operate. So, yeah, they kind of have them up against the wall. They, um, I mean, this is just a simplistic, non-technological kind of thought here, but if I have a mobile phone and I turn it off, I'm sure it can still be tracked, but like if I wrap it in foil and do, I mean, is there any way that I can just not be tracked? There are ways to, to, to not be tracked. We can talk a lot more about those, uh, during this conversation, but basic things that people will do to stop from being tracked is to put their uh, phone inside, you know, a foil bag, for example, right. Or turn their phone off. The reality today is that your phone is still collecting your location data, even when it's turned off. Um, if you turn your phone off and walk around town and then turn your phone back on again, first thing that phone does is it transmits all of your location history while it was turned off back to the operating system provider, the network operator, and essentially anyone else that it's connected to providing location information to. Uh, and so, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, work done on this, a lot of news reports done on this. You can find several of them on the internet where they actually took, you know, an Android phone and an Apple phone, turned them off and walked around town in them. And when they got back on, first thing that phone did was transmit a bunch of packets of data back to Apple or Google. Okay. And most of those packets of data were location information. Okay. So, but if the phone is off, I can't be tracked until I turn it back on and it can show where I was at. But like, if I turn it off, put it in foil or whatever, if it's just off, um, I can't be tracked for that time. But later when I turn it on, it, it, it will historically show, I mean, it'll so, show where I've been. Uh, there are exceptions to that. So when your phone is off, your phone can still be remotely controlled. If someone's got the right technology in place to be able to do that, uh, they can actually, essentially your phone will appear to be off and it's all, it, it's still on and transmitting data. Now, obviously if you put it inside a full bag, that's going to inhibit the transmission of the data. Uh, but eventually when you take it out of that bag, it'll, it'll transmit again. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's much better to be anonymous than to try to fool things by turning your phone off, for example. Right. Um, one of the keys to successful, to successfully avoiding detection is what I think of as hiding in plain sight rather than trying to hide yourself because 
somebody that shuts their phone off and it stops transmitting the location data and then it, later it turns back on again, that's an immediate flag that, hey, what's this person up to, right? right? Whereas it's much better if you have a phone and nobody knows that it's you on that phone, right? Gotcha. That, that's a, a much better thing. And, and that phone continues to transmit. It continues to look like a, a, a regular device. Um, you know, and I'll talk a little, a little bit uh, about for a moment here. Um, you know, my company is a company called For Freedom Mobile. And one of the first things that we did was actually implement a mobile service that prevents the network operators from being able to track your location, your identity, your communications, your internet activity. And one of the main things that we did to enable that was we disassociated the phone number from the SIM card. Mm -hmm. Your mobile operator is completely dependent on that SIM card to identify you and track you. And so uh, what happens when an AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile SIM card gets onto the network, first thing it does, it registers on the network and says, hi, here's my, and it gives a whole bunch of different identification information, including the SIM card ID, the device ID, phone number, and a bunch of other information. Um, using that information, they can immediately tell, oh, this is John Smith. He lives at this address. And they begin collecting all of the data from your device and putting it into a folder titled John Smith. Um, you know, it belongs to that unique phone number. And it's really the phone number is the critical piece that they use to say, okay, this is who this is, right? Mm -hmm. um, what also exists in the world though, are what they call machine to machine SIMs. These are data only SIM cards that are not meant to have phone numbers. So a good example, your home alarm system probably has a, a machine to machine SIM card in it. Most of the IOT, industrial automation, IOT devices in the world use these machine to machine SIM cards to transmit data back to whatever their mothership is, right? And if you look at most mobile operator networks, you'll see there are, you know, let's say a million uh, uh, phone users on that network, They'll, there may be 10 million of these machine to machine SIMs on that network. And these machine to machine SIMs are not associated with individual users. They're associated with specific devices. You know, it's a, a lock on a, on, a, on a cargo container that's traveling across country and it's being used to track the location of that cargo container, right? By whoever it is that owns that cargo container. So, so these machine to machine SIMs actually, because when they register on the network, they don't say who they are. Mm -hmm. They simply say, uh, I'm, you know, SIM ID, you know, and they give their 16, 19 digit SIM ID. And then they say, uh, I'm supposed to have access to the following resources on the network. And the network gives them those resources. And what we've done with our solution is actually we're employing those machine-to-machine -machine SIM cards to provide people with the ability to have a communication service, a mobile, mobile telephony experience without Me having too. a traditional voice and SMS SIM card that shares all of their identification information uh, with the network. Interesting. So what was the, the prompt for you to, to create um, for Freedom Mobile and, and, and develop these kinds of services? Like, I mean, you were working over in Eastern Europe and other places around the, the world working with governments and, and then you came back home and you just said, you know, I, I, we've got to do something. What, what, was, the, uh, what was the cause? Yeah, so, so 
I, as I said, you know, I spent many years working in places like Russia and Kazakhstan and Saudi Arabia and South Africa, places like that, implementing these systems. And while doing that, I was a foreigner working for government national security agencies and the local mobile operators and things like that. I was constantly being surveilled as a foreigner. They were worried that I was a spy and I was implementing some software that was going to allow the American government to get whatever data they're getting, right? And so I, and I looked at that and said, okay, it's a cost of doing business, cost of being here and doing this work. I'm okay being surveilled, right? I moved back to the U.S. in 2019 after spending most of the last 30 years outside the U.S. and was very excited to do so. And uh, I thought, man, I'm moving back to the land of the free. Finally, I'm going to be able to you know, live my life without being surveilled. I mean, I was having my email hacked regularly. I was physically followed. I was having my phone conversations listened in on. And I kind of, but I just lived my life and said, okay, that, that's normal there. I was shocked when I moved back to the U.S., how much I was being surveilled. I'm actually surveilled more in the U.S. than I ever was living in Kazakhstan or, or Russia or whatever. Uh, uh, and, and it dawned on me, it probably should, I probably should have figured that out a long time ago, but it dawned on me then that all these great technologies I had been implementing over in these countries, they were developed here in the U.S. first mm -hmm. and implemented here in the U.S. first. And, and so I, I was concerned about how much I was being tracked. And I started talking to my friends and, and they said, well, yeah, yeah, we're concerned about it too, but you know, it's just so complicated. You, you can't do anything about it. And, and I thought to myself, you know, somebody should be able to do something about this. And so I started first initially kind of as a hobby, trying to figure out, okay, can I come up with a way to stop all of this tracking? And that hobby became a passion and that passion as of last year turned into a business. And that was when I, a year ago is when I launched For Freedom Mobile. Okay. So I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit. And then I want to get into what you, what exactly you do at Freedom Mobile. But, you know, you, you said that you were kind of shocked about the level of surveillance in the U.S. But, you know, I'm sure you went through the whole, you know, the, the documents that Snowden released. Uh, and, you know, the, I think pretty much the whole world's aware of the level of surveillance on the general public by different U.S. government agencies. So, I mean, is it, is it above and beyond what Snowden was talking about? And if so, give some examples, please. So uh, there's a lot of different pieces to that question, right? And it's not just government agencies. It's every network operator collects and sells your data. Um, every uh, tech company that's got an app on your device collects and sells your data. Big tech, small tech, doesn't matter. They're collecting and selling your data. Uh, every uh, operating system on your mobile devices. They're collecting your data. Uh, you know, it, 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 it just the sheer breadth of different organizations that are collecting your data and they're all selling it to anyone with a dollar, anyone with a buck willing to pay for it. They don't care what they're planning to use it for. There's been an instance in the last several years in which a company sold all of their users' data uh, to a Vietnamese identity theft ring. You know, and so, and, so is and, that and, is that your major concern is that the the, the data is going to be out there and that these you know these these bad actors these cyber criminals are going to get a hold of it or is are there some other concerns? I mean, like you know, so a lot of qu times people just say like, who cares if people find out with the data? I mean, it's like you know, unless you're trying to hide yeah. something, there's nothing to hide, right? You know, <laughs> so, so so my concern personal may differ from other people's concerns. My concern personally 
is that I know how this data gets used by companies and by governments to manipulate people's access to information. And through that manipulation of access to information, manipulates the way they think, manipulates the way they act, what actions they take, what choices they make. So back in uh, 2008 to about 2012, Facebook and Google ran a lot of experiments and they published the results of those experiments on the internet around how they were able to manipulate people's actions simply by showing them some information and withholding other information from them. And this has become a whole science now uh, in, in, the in, in the field of data science around creating virtual versions of you and running tests on that to determine what action are you going to take if this is what the information that you have, and then choosing to show you that information. Now, the way it gets used with uh, social media companies can, can, today, right? Yeah, I was going to say, give, give a real life example. Very simple example here, right? Social media companies are just like uh, TV, right? They're an ad-driven business. It's all about eyeballs on the screen. They figured out 10, 15 years ago that if they show you things that make you feel good and warm and fuzzy, you're going to stop looking at, at Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and, and you're going to go off and do something else. So what they have begun doing is they show you things that are going to play on your fear, uncertainty, and doubt, because that's going to drive your engagement. They're going to keep eyeballs on the screen because they're an ad-driven model. And so if you think about it, Facebook or any other social media platform, TikTok, et cetera, they have a vested interest in trying to pit different fragments of society against one another. So they have a vested interest in the fragmentation of society because if they put you know, people who are uh, for one thing on one side of an issue and against something on another side of an issue and they pit them against each other, that's going to drive their engagements online, right? Pro-life, pro-choice. Well, yeah, there's that. Uh, old there's versus that. young, uh, all of these other political aspects, but even just simple things, you know, some of the most basic things are get, you get utilized to drive this engagement. And, and, and so my concern, because I've seen this done by governments in Eastern Europe manipulating the population's access to information in order to drive certain behavior from that population, certain beliefs around what's actually happening in the country or in the world. Uh, so, and so that's personally my concern is I see that seem, that scenario seems to be occurring here in the U.S. where we do see real situations in which Government agencies are engaging with tech companies, engaging with network operators to collect information on people, analyze that information, and then utilize that information to control people's access to information. And as a result, manipulate the way they think about things and the way they act on certain okay. things. So, so I, I, I think we're, we're talking about a couple different issues because you gave a macro example of how these companies or governments can manipulate the masses, okay? So if we create a perceived conflict, engagement levels will go up and so we can sell more ads, right? Um, but, but what I was talking about is as an individual, I'm concerned about, you know, I, should I be concerned about protecting my data or being surveilled? And, you know, because really on an individual level, 
how is it, how is, does the government knowing where I've been and what I've purchased, how should, how does that concern me at an individual level? I get the, at the societal level, but let's, let's, let's uh, bring it back home. Real simple. You, limiting your access to information they don't want you to know about. You know, mm -hmm. Perfect example is the vaccines against COVID. The government had an aggressive program to limit people's access to negative information about the vaccines because they were promoting people getting the vaccines. Okay, that, that's been shown repeatedly. They were working together with big tech, giving them information saying, hey, you need to you know, remove this person's post. You need to remove this article. You know, when people search, uh, uh, you need to put this on the fifth page of the search results, not on the first page, that sort of thing. You know, that, that was a concrete example where that was happening. I give, I, I'm in total agreement with you on that. And, um, and I, I want to come back to that because it's something that I'm, I'm quite passionate about. Uh, you know, there were several examples. You look at what happened to Joe Rogan, for example, you know, because he dared to try uh, the, you know, the, the non-government sanctioned treatment and because he, he had some concerns about the vaccine and, um, and God, he was just, you know, he was ostracized by half the country and, and, and laughed at because they said that he took quote unquote horse dewormer, which ivermectin is, is one of the most commonly, um, used medicines in the world. People, have, two people have won the Nobel prize for its application to help humans and, um, and it's perfectly safe. But, you know, the, the mainstream didn't want to, um, to buy into that. So I'm in total agreement with you on that. But again, back to an individual being surveilled. How does, because what you're talking about is the government blocking or big tech throttling down certain narratives that they don't want to, the, you know, to, for the people to, to see or hear. But what I'm talking about is, you know, we started this off with surveillance. People are tracking me, my whereabouts. How does that hurt me as an individual? So on your normal day-to-day -day life, you have no idea how much is going on in terms of, you know, how that data is getting used to limit your access and visibility to things. You know, another, another thing here that very clear instances I've seen this happen is, um, People will get tracked based on who they associate with. Mm -hmm. If you're associating with somebody that they don't like, you know, you become a person of interest. They begin, you know, researching you, that sort of thing. You know, uh, there are um, so many, it's, it's not that today everyone in America needs to be afraid. It's that the technology has evolved to a place where it can be used in some very negative ways to identify group of people and go after that group of people, right? And I'll give you a simple example. It used to be when you had people that were pro-life, that were expressing their pro-life feelings, whether that was online or that was standing in a park at some kind of a protest event, it was, okay, yeah, you know, they have a right to, to have their opinion on that subject, right? What we've seen in the last two years is the government actually utilizing the fact that they were doing that as an excuse to go after them, you know? And so, and so, you know, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist or, or, or anything like that. The point that I'm making, and, and this happens frankly, all too frequently in 
developing countries or, or you know, Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia, countries that are less democratic than the U.S., I'll put it to that way, um, where data will be collected and utilized against people. And my perception looking at America today as somebody who just got plopped in here after almost 30 years of not being here is America has dramatically changed in the last 20 to 30 years. Do you it think? Is, <laughs> it, sorry, is, it is, it is, yeah, but it, I mean, it, it is government agencies themselves are far more partisan than they ever were in the past. And so it's only a matter of time if, before they begin utilizing these technologies. And frankly, I'm sure they already are. We're just not aware of it to go after certain individuals or certain groups, you know, and, okay. and, 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 and to harm them. And, and so that's the risk that I see. And, and, and by nature, having lived in all of these, frankly, less democratic countries, uh, I'm a bit of a libertarian. I'm very much against the government having any involvement in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, well, good, good, good luck with that. But, um, and, and I, and I say that <laughs> it's just being, being on the same side of the table with you in terms of that opinion, but I'm, 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 I'm kind of cynical, um, in terms of, yeah, of, of what, where, what we've, what we've gone through and the transformation that's happened over the last 20, 30 years. Um, but so let's, let's just say, for example, Hey, I'm an aspiring podcaster. I have some some views that run counter to the official narrative. You know, maybe it's on vaccine, maybe it's on our involvement in the Ukraine conflict, yeah, whatever it is. And I don't want the government to, or anybody to track my activities or where I'm at on a day-to-day -day basis. I just want to be as, as anonymous as possible. What are my options? So I think, I think like any good cybersecurity uh, situation, the first question you've got to ask is what are all the attack vectors, right? How are the different ways that they are tracking you? Now, in my company, what I figured out is that the, the mobile phone is the most likely target to be tracked. And then so we'll, we'll, I'll focus for the next few minutes just on your mobile phone. But you know, it, with your mobile phone, you've got a lot of different actors that are tracking you and a lot of, if not all of that data gets shared directly with the government. So uh, a simple example, if you take the network operators, all of the network operators are required by law to keep a record of every phone call and text message you send and receive and maintain that data for a minimum of five years and allow the government open access to those records uh, without a warrant or subpoena or anything like that. Um, normally they're keeping it between seven and 10 years, depending on the operator. In addition to that, the network operators are collecting your location, your identity, uh, all of your internet activity, all of your app usage, because every time you open up an app, it connects to the internet and they're able to track that connection. Um, they even ca uh, collect data on what time did you wake up this morning? Because what's the first thing most of us do? We pick up our mobile phone. They have access to your phone's gyroscope. And so they know when that mobile phone's moving and what position it's in, you know, vertical, horizontal, et cetera. So they're collecting an enormous amount of data, just the network operator right there, right? Uh, you know, this, the, the second category is the phone operating system provider. In most cases, it's Apple or Google, right? It's an iOS phone or it's an Android phone. Your average iOS operating system sends data on you back to Apple 52 times a day. That's according to tests run by the US FCC. 
your average Android device sends data on you back to Google 14 times an hour. That's more than 300 times a day. And this data is everything that you're doing on that device, right? Then you go into the apps themselves, right? If you've got Google apps on your phone, of course, they're collecting all your data and sharing it with Google. Uh, uh, you've got, you know, whatever apps you're using on your phone, most of them are collecting a lot of your data and, and sharing it with whatever company provided that app, right? Uh, so I tend to focus on what I think of as the biggest uh, of those actors, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, other social media companies, your, your traditional big tech, if you will. Um, so when you look at those various actors involved there, there's a lot of different pieces you've got to put in place to protect yourself. So very simple thing, right? Do you need an Apple or an Android phone? Well, most people will tell you, yeah, you've got to have it because otherwise you aren't going to get access to the apps that you want to use, the whole benefit of having a smartphone. So there are options that exist in the marketplace today for what's called a de-Googled Android phone. Now, there are a lot of companies out there promoting secure phones that have a unique operating system. The problem with those is that they don't support a bunch of different apps. But there's also a category of phones that have de-Googled Android operating systems. Android is an open source project. You can get the Android operating system. You can remove all of the Google services and just use that Android operating system on a phone. And so uh, we have a phone like that, the For Freedom Secure Phone, which is based on a de-Googled version of Android. You know, we have our own navigator app and, you know, the various other tools you need. We're using a, a, a Firefox a search engine and, and things like that to uh, help people be able to use whatever apps they want to use. You want to download Spotify, you can still do that on this phone, right? It's an Android-based phone, so it'll work with all the Android apps. It just doesn't support any Google services of any kind. So if you need, you want to use an app like a Gmail app uh, to look at your email, it won't work on this phone because it doesn't support any Google services, right? Uh, and, and so uh, that, that's kind of one starting point. You should get rid of the operating system tracking you. You want to get rid of the network operators tracking you. So that's where we developed our mobile service, where you sign up for our mobile service, you put our SIM card in your phone, you download our app and use our app for doing all of your calls and messages. And you're going to be able to call anyone anywhere in the world uh, and not have the network operators being able to track your communications. All your communications are encrypted. But more importantly, they're not going to be able to track your identity. Because your SIM card is not identifying you to the network when it registers on it, nobody's going to be able to track your identity. And the way we've built our uh, network coverage we have, uh, we provide coverage in over 200 countries around the world, right out of the box in our base plan. And in every country in the world, we have agreements in place with two or more network operators. And so your phone will just switch between the network operators, depending on which tower has the best signal at that time, which also limits the ability of anybody to track you, even if they don't do know what your SIM card ID is, right? Because then they have to go to multiple operators to be able to track you. Uh, our app encrypts all of your communications. It comes with a VPN to encrypt all of your internet activity. Uh, in addition to that, we have, uh, we are this month launching a new app we call Safe Social Media, which will allow you, instead of downloading the Facebook app or the TikTok app or whatever, you can download our Safe Social Media app and you can access all of your social media 
without social media being able to take any data from your phone. So you can go out and use Facebook if you want to, or use TikTok if you want to, or use LinkedIn if you want to. But Facebook, TikTok, and LinkedIn aren't going to be able to pull any data like your location, your contacts, or any of that type of stuff from your phone. I would love uh, to so see a demo, demo of this. I would love to, you know, go on my computer, do a search for a mountain bike, and then open up the phone and go into Google. And I bet you I'd be served a mountain bike ad. But I mean, typically you would be, but you're saying, no, that wouldn't happen. Oh, I'm saying that if you go into Google, it'll happen. <laughs> if you if I went into Facebook, you, if, if you use our, yeah. So if you go into Facebook in our, uh, safe social media app, Facebook is going to use whatever data Facebook has. So if you searched in Google and Facebook had access to your Google search data on that other device that you're using, then yeah, Facebook's going to serve up ads for you about a mountain bike, right? If you do that search on our device, on our phone, then you go out and access Facebook. You're probably not going to get ser served up a, a mountain biking ad on Facebook. Okay. And, and how do we know that um, your network is not tracking our location? So, um, frankly, our core design principle is ignorance by design. So when you sign up for our service, you sign up anonymously. You just provide an email address. You actually, we work with Stripe. Stripe processes all of our payments for us. So we don't collect any payment information ourselves. We don't know who you are. Uh, literally, the only information we've got on you is your email address and then your phone number, right? Uh, we don't collect your location, identity, communications, nothing. And, and, you know, we've had already had instances in which we've been approached by um, the FBI and, and U.S. attorney's offices with subpoenas requiring us to provide all the data we have on some of our subscribers for certain reasons. And we were unable to fulfill uh, more than just providing them. Okay, here's the person's email address. Here's the person's phone number. They signed up for a service on this date. And that's mm -hmm. all the information we've got on them, right? Because we don't know anything else other than that, right? And so um, uh, that is, is really, you know, kind of one of our core brand promises is ignorance by design. We don't want to know. My expectation is eventually we will get hacked. Eventually the government's going to show up demanding our data. You know, uh, uh, somebody's going to want to try to get that data and, and use it or sell it or whatever. And so I feel like it's much safer just to not have the data in the first place. Uh, it, you know, at the same time, I, I, you, your service can be very attractive to drug dealers, uh, you know, other sorts of criminals, right? Because the, so, but I mean, how do you deal with that kind of ethical conundrum there? So I believe you know, we have the fourth amendment, which is supposed to be protecting our privacy and our communications and our personal effects. Unfortunately, the uh, Supreme Court has never interpreted to go beyond written documents, letters, personal letters. Uh, they have never applied that to say, well, an email is effectively an electronic version of a letter. Uh, so emails can be read by anybody who wants to, that sort of thing. So I, I always, my belief is to err on the side of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, tracking people through their mobile phones, tracking people's communications, that's just one method that law enforcement has to track down drug dealers and, and things like that. So, you know, maybe they've become very dependent on that method, but it is still just one method because... You know, they will come 
combating uh, uh, drug dealers and things like that long before mobile phones even existed. Right. Sure. So, so, you know, it's, it's not a, a, you know, I, th I think of, of our service is very similar to a hammer. You can use a hammer to hammer in a nail. You can use a hammer to beat somebody up with, it, right? It, it's the individual that decides how to use the tool. Um, and, and, you know, the government's not going to go out and regulate the sale of hammers. Uh, or, so, or, or you need something else that starts with an H that is also hotly debated and ends with a gun. So <laughs> anyway, um, oh, yeah. what are your, you yeah. know, you know, yeah, it's the same, it's the, the same logic applies, right? I mean, it's just an, an object it can be used for the good or bad. Um, what are your thoughts on the Brave browser? Does this help at all? So I like the idea of the Brave, Brave browser. I have not drilled down enough into it to see that, you know, I, I, for myself that I feel that it works effectively. I will tell you, we actually evaluated putting the Brave browser on our phones as the primary browser. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, the Brave browser has some idiosyncrasies built into it that uh, uh, prevent it from working on uh, certain versions of the Android operating system. And when I was told that by their team, that kind of surprised me. The other thing is that um, in order to post an app on the Google Play Store, that app has to include certain components that are required by Google to be included. And in my opinion, those components can often be used by Google for collecting information. Um, now, they claim that it's just for doing technical uh, verification that the apps are working properly and that sort of thing, but we don't post our apps on the Google Play Store uh, because of that, because Google won't accept them without those components and we won't make them with those components. So, uh, you know, we post our, our iOS apps on the, on the App Store, uh, but we, have, we feel like we have pretty good control over what's in there uh, and we're not being forced by Apple to put stuff in there for Apple. Uh, but when it comes to Android apps, we don't post them on the Play Store. We post them on our website. You can download them from, directly from our website. Um, uh, the Brave browser is available on the Google Play Store. So my question is, okay, what are they doing to allow themselves to be posted on the Google Play Store? Got you. What are your thoughts on the concept of sovereign identity? It's kind of a big subject. So when you say sovereign identity, what specifically are you referring to in this case? Well, okay. In my case, it's the, you know, that we as individuals should own our identity and that any, not just tracking and surveillance, but any targeted marketing would need our permission. And you could even take it a step further and say that marketers which are using tracking, right, in terms of our activity and our locations, should pay us for the ability to track us and surveil us if we allow them to, but they should pay us and to even serve us ads. Yeah, so I love the concept. Um, so we've actually engaged with several companies that are involved in trying to enable people to be paid for watching ads. Uh, you know. We, we began by saying, okay, we're going to prevent your data from being collected because mm -hmm. we felt like that was the be first step is, you know, the, the next step is to say, okay, 
we'll allow you to collect your data and you can sell that data to whoever you want, right? Uh, and there are some companies out there working on that type of, a, a, of an approach and, and, I, and I'm all for it. My personal opinion, I tend to be um, um, maybe a little bit of a pessimist in, in this regard is I believe that the government has too great a vested interest in being able to collect and use people's data that they're going to do whatever they can to prevent those types of uh, services from being successful. There's always going to be some kind of a backdoor in there that allows them to do things that maybe others can't do or, or that sort of thing. So, so even when the, if those services do reach the market, I suspect that they're not going to be as clean as we would like them to be. I'm sure there's going to be backdoors or, or, or other things like that built into them. One more topic that I'd like to touch on, and that is digital currencies. Uh, and in the prep notes for this show, one of the topics that was suggested was digital currency, how it will be used to track, control, and manipulate you. Now, I'm assuming that you're talking about some type of government-backed digital currency versus something like Bitcoin, because the Bitcoin by default is anonymous and you are on the blockchain. The government cannot, well, how to say cannot, With, without an extraordinary amount of work, it's difficult for them to figure out who people are on the blockchain. That's my understanding. Now, what is your concern with digital currency, the official stuff or even the non-official government-backed stuff like uh, Bitcoin? So my big concern with digital currency is the government-backed digital currency. And I think the digital yuan is a, a very good example where based on people's social scores in China, they can actually have money removed from their account, from their bank account. How Orwellian uh, is for not that? behaving that is, just, yeah, it, that is just crazy. It, it was 1984 in action. And the U.S. Fed has been working for many years now to prepare a U.S. digital dollar. And, and, and I find that terrifying, especially when you look at, you know, just last year in Canada, when the Canadian government decided it didn't like the truckers, they started shutting down their bank accounts. Dude, you without are even a rebel. A, a you, are, you, you are such a rebel, man. But no, I'm totally with you. It's, it was crazy. It, it's These, scary. I, it, what, they, it, they weren't it, shutting down the bank accounts of the truckers, they were shutting down people who donated to money to support the truckers. So I go on there, go onto this GoFundMe page and, and, and give them 50 bucks. The government in Canada did this. They could go in and not to me, cause I'm not Canadian and I didn't donate, but they did it to many individuals where they would free, they froze their bank accounts for donated. And then they went to GoFundMe and they said, we want to know everybody who had, they wanted the list. They wanted the data, man. That's messed up. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you no, can, I, I you agree. Can, <laughs> you, can, you can love the truckers or hate the truckers. Um, but I think we all agree that if you donate to a cause that is legal at the time, okay, there's the government shouldn't just be allowed to go in and freeze your bank account. But yeah, you know, so, so and this goes back to the question you asked me at the beginning of the call around what is the risk to an individual on their day-to-day -day life having their data collected? Well, there's mm -hmm. a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. You want to donate to save the puppies and then suddenly save the puppies becomes, <laughs> oh, that's an organization that's funding terrorism. You're funding terrorism. You're, you know, we're going to track you down. We're going to freeze your bank account. 
you know, and that, that's that's the, the 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 scary risk here, right? Now, I, I did want to touch though, because you raised the question around Bitcoin, and and I did want to touch on something regarding Bitcoin and other blockchain based currencies, because the FBI has proven very well that those are not anonymous. Mm -hmm. The blockchain is a public registry. Your account is based on some email address. And all the FBI has to do is track down who owns that email address. That's your account. That's right. not your so coins. It's, so you don't have an account on the blockchain. No, that's, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but uh, your account. Um, that's the exchange. So, if you're using yeah. an account on an exchange, they can track you. Um, but that's the whole argument about not using an exchange and not using um, some, not hosting your coins on somebody else's platform. You have to have your own digital wallet. Uh, that's my understanding. Okay. And yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you I'm a Bitcoin expert, but what I am going to tell you is that we have seen many instances of the FBI tracking people down. Oh yeah. For crimes related to Bitcoin based on their email address. And so, uh, my perception is that blockchain is not as private as people originally thought it was when they first started engaging in Bitcoin transactions. Uh, the privacy isn't there. And, and, and I raise that because uh, I have a vested interest in, in raising that because we have already launched our own payments platform. It's a beta version today that you know, the idea is no one's going to be able to track your transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, we're actually... Uh, planning to launch an updated version of it later this year that we're using a, an alternative to the blockchain that is, the plan is that it will be far more private and it will be essentially impossible for somebody to monitor your financial transactions and, you know, track any transactions because there isn't a central registry that's publicly available. So well, I, I, would, I, I, I would don't want to go into a lot of details around that, but, but the point is that what's motivating us to do that is not Bitcoin. It's not block, the issues with blockchain. It's frankly the issues with national governments rolling out these digital currencies that they're going to be able to control and manipulate and decide, yes, you can spend your money there or no, you can't spend your money there. Right. That, that's terrifying to me. Yeah. So... Well, I, you know, and I would love to learn more about that. Um, and there's several topics that we haven't even touched on. I, I do kind of have to wrap things up, but let me ask you, because normally our listeners, they're, you know, cybersecurity professionals working for organizations, but everybody who's a cybersecurity professional is also an individual and is concerned about their own personal uh, cybersecurity and, you know, protecting their identity, et cetera. In, in the context of a company or an organization, what are some of the tools available or best practices that they can adopt to, you know, protect themselves from some of these same threats? Because companies have IP, uh, companies can be, individuals can be opened, uh, you know, to extortion. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the less information that external agencies have about their team and their activities, in many cases, the better. So what, what can people do at an organizational or company level? So I'm gonna start by saying, my experience in the corporate world over many, many years working for very large corporations, most in the technology field is companies, especially the biggest companies, generally do an awful lot to secure the company's information 
in their networks, in their servers, in their PCs, their notebooks, that sort of thing. The vast majority of companies do almost nothing to secure the company's information on their mobile devices. Mm -hmm. Most companies today have a bring your own device approach and every employee just does whatever he wants on his phone. And oh yeah, by the way, he might have the Salesforce app on there so he can access the corporate Salesforce uh, information or he has the, uh, 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 you know, the, the ERP app so he can access the company's uh, ERP system, that sort of thing. Mobile phones are enormous targets for spyware and malware. And if somebody wants to engage in corporate, corporate espionage, the number one target, I believe, is mobile phones, the employees' mobile phones, because the vast majority of companies are doing little to nothing to protect the data on the mobile phones. And if you can use spyware or malware to access somebody's corporate email communications, to access somebody's uh, files that they've saved on their phone, uh, that sort of thing, you know, there's an enormous amount of data you can take out of that. Uh, out of what, what they're doing on their phone. Um, and so I, I see that as the biggest risk. And, and, and that's you know, part of the reason why we promote our services to businesses is because you help them secure the mobile phones of their employees. Uh, I, I just see that as, as it, it's not about, you know, you're not so much worried about tracking people's locations, although you know, in some cases that can be corporate uh, confidential information too. It's much more around securing companies' communications and uh, documents and things like that that are stored on the mobile phone. And then that's, that's really where uh, I see the big risk in, in, in corporate cybersecurity today, that, that, that big gap that no one's really addressing. And so we're trying to start addressing that ourselves. Um, and, and there are a number of other companies out there working to address that. I don't think anyone has truly come up with a solution that solves the problem yet. Got you. Well, hey, David. I've, I'm, I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm fascinated by it. Um, and I would love to have you back on in a, in a few months to, to talk about some of the things that we missed, but, but also to hear how your um, transaction platform or payment platform is progressing. Um, if people want to you know, connect with you or find out more information about For Freedom Mobile, what's the best way for them to do that? So, so the best way to learn more about For Freedom Mobile is to go out to our website. It's for like the number four, freedommobile.com. That's for freedommobile.com. Uh, you're just starting with our homepage. We've got a lot of information out there. Very easy to contact our team and ask questions. Uh, you know, we're more than happy to uh, uh, engage in these types of conversations uh, with people who are interested in learning more. Awesome. Hey, David, thanks so much for being on Secure Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.